I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. It is a dream job from that point of view, and that's what's kept me going for so long that it's just this constant introduction of of mostly excellent wines um, and mostly excellent regions, producers, stories to tell and write. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. If you drink Australian wine, then you know the name Jenny Port. She is an authority on all things wine in this country and has contributed to every major wine publication, such as The Age, Holiday Wine Companion, as well as published three of her own books. The epitome of a true professional taster and communicator, Jenny's impact on the wine scene of Australia is nothing short of remarkable. I am thrilled to have her on the podcast. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Shantae. That was some intro. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, I can feel the blushing from here, but it's not, it's completely true. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm so pleased to be here. <laughs> Nick, maybe I can mute out the intros and you can just I can just say, hi, Jenny, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> so you have been, well, in the past, the longest serving wine writer in the Age newspaper, mm-hmm. but I want to know where the wonderful world of wine and wine writing began for you? Ah, well, they're two separate stories, aren't they? (laughs) Very quickly, the world of wine opened up through my aunt, who never had children, uh, was Irish kind of Catholic in uh, in her background, and uh, she had no idea how to treat children. So when I visited her, which is quite regularly, she would bring out wine and we would share a bottle and um, it was Barossa Pearl. Every time. I loved it. I loved it. I loved the taste. I um, I was really excited by the flavours. And I was a nine-year-old at this time. Uh, so you get some idea of it started early, my interest in wine. <laughs> my parents certainly didn't know that it was happening and I wasn't going to tell them. But um, I've, I, I did become a wine drinker from the age of nine. <laughs> And then, I love your aunt already. She sounds fantastic. <laughs> oh, she was quite incredible. Um, and then, of course, I went into journalism and I was drinking wine, you know, at uh, the Phoenix Hotel across the way from the old Hill and Weekly Times building in Melbourne was very famous watering hole for journos in between writing stories and going out and uh, talking to people. So I started again back then when, when we started as a cadet, um, on the sun and um, I did my cadetship which is three years and then an opening started or became available in the sun women's section and when I say that these days people roll their eyes there was a women's section it was a lifestyle kind of section Uh, there were knitting patterns and cooking and um, they also had women's stories so I went in there and I replaced Rita Ehrlich, a very famous food name down here in Melbourne. And she had been writing about markets and food and this and that. So I had to do her Friday column. And, I, you know, it was okay. But I was starting to meet wine people at some of these food events. And then that really got me going. And I thought, okay, every now and again, I'll write a little story about uh, wine. Female winemakers were the first stories that I wrote. 
of course, to go with the theme. And uh, I started the, the first wine column on the sun um, through the back door, through the women's section, um, but I was thrilled to be able to kind of have that, to, to, to start writing about wine. And then, of course, when I married, had my first child, I left the sun, went straight over to the age Epicure, and I was there for 30 years writing about wine. Amazing. I mean, you say that people roll their eyes, but everything started somewhere. How incredible to be part of such a such a fundamental and, you know, formative time. And the fact that you were writing about um, women in wine from the get-go, like you said, you found it wasn't to, um, I suppose, to kind of uh, be revolutionary, but it was your way in, wasn't it? Certainly was, and I loved it. And then it was this natural progression, which I, I find happens a little bit easier now, but I decided to work from home with my first child and then my second child, and it just worked in perfectly to uh, to write about wine from home, um, put the kids in a bit of daycare occasionally, go and visit vineyards, talk to winemakers, taste wine. It was a really lovely transition to um, working with children. Um, and I, I continue to do it today. I have worked from home, what is it, 30, 36 years? 36 years, I reckon, we're coming up for. Um, yeah, so I work from home still. Amazing. What was the landscape of Australian wine writing like back then? I mean, it's changed so much, but who did you and who did you look to as your kind of comrades and advisors at that time? Uh, uh, there were very few, quite frankly, very few. Uh, David Dunstan was around my time. He was, uh, he was an age wine writer on and off a bit. Um, Sarah Goff was a fellow wine writer who became uh, the PR for Brown Brothers and now has Boxgrove Vineyard herself up in Avenal. There were very few. So that's why um, I did meet Colin Richardson and he was my mentor. He ran the Wine and Brandy Producers Association of Victoria back then. And he was this Massive man in so many ways, physically, intellectually, enthusiastically um, about wine. And he asked me to join the Wine Press Club of Victoria. So I went on the board and then I, I became president. And so it all, you just learnt from some amazing people. But Colin was the one um, who really helped me, who really encouraged me because there weren't that many women back then writing about wine. Mm. I can't I can't even imagine it to be honest but thank god that you did because here we are today and you have just been like I said so fundamental in paving the way for people um so you also wrote three books um which came a little bit later as well you wrote uh, choosing australian wine crushed by women uh just between us, what an amazing title that is. Um, and also the Australasian editor for Wines of the World as well. Tell us a little bit about the experience of writing books and also what's it like to hold your own printed book in your hands for the first time? Well, first of all, writing a book is for me no different to writing a story. You're writing for a wine consumer, 
that is always the person I have in mind when I'm writing a story or, or a book. And certainly choosing Australian wines was a primer. So that was that fundamental information that you are required to provide as well as some tasting notes and things. So in many ways, that was the start of what I'm now doing with Halliday Wine Companion book and the, and the website that you're giving information, but you're also giving a clue as to the taste of a wine what people can expect from it, whether they might like it or not. I always remember James Halliday said it was really important to let the consumer or the reader know whether you liked the wine or not. You just can't talk about, you know, blackberries and plums and oak and whatever. You've got to give a more personal um, opinion of it. So I learned that quite early on with choosing Australian wines. I loved Crushed by Women. It didn't sell heaps, Um didn't sell a lot at all, actually. <laughs> outrageous. I'm, I'm so offended by that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it reached the right hands, and I was thrilled that Jane Thompson, who's the founder of Fabulous um, uh, Women's Wine Society, and read that and decided that she wanted to also found the Australian Women and Wine Awards and contacted me. So that book was her introduction to me, and to the work that we've done through uh, the Women Wine Awards, um, so that for me that was that was an absolute thrill that she was so taken by the book. Um, yeah, and I think it's it's really nice to hold a book that you've written in your hands, but it can be an ego trip. I think um, you start getting, you know, you're an author and you're wandering around thinking people are going to no, that's the author. Uh, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> doesn't work that way at all you got to sell it you got to talk to people and you got to meet people and you've um you become a, a marketer which isn't really in my wheelhouse so um i'm not really big on promoting myself uh, you know i just hope that they they liked the book those who who bought it mm. i imagine it is i suppose just a tangible way to mark you know, all the work that goes into it. It doesn't sound like it's something that you can do in one weekend writing a, a book, but uh, amazing that you've had that accomplishment so far. Um, I wanted to touch on what you said earlier, which was a little bit about um, the consumer. Um, coming from a sommelier background, we always talk about the guest and and what you're there for and, what, and who is it for. From what I can, what I've learned so far is the great writers, especially about wine, are always talking about the consumer and who you're writing for and what you owe them. So talk to me a little bit about the role of that person that you're writing for and, and what that means to you. It's really interesting because of my journalism background, whenever I write for a magazine or a newspaper, you get a directive from the editor as to who your reader is. With The Sun, the reader was um, your average Joe who drank beer. Uh, that's why I actually had trouble putting in a, a wine column to start off with because wine was not for The Sun reader. So it was a bit more lowbrow, which is kind of tabloid anyway because The Sun was a tabloid newspaper. It's now The Herald Sun. Um but then when I went to the age, I went up. So suddenly I can talk more about, um, you know, matters that are a little bit more academic and a little bit more highbrow and a little bit more um, descriptive and l lots of longer words, actually. So the person I was writing for, for the age, was 
to a degree, not the same person I was writing for for The Sun. And the same for each magazine and book. You always get directives about who you are writing for. So then I that's my starting point. I, I can't be either too you know, wordy or not wordy enough or and, – and there's a certain prediction about, well, the reader of this magazine uh, buys a lot of wine, has a seller generally, is probably male, um, you know, age 50, average age 40 to 60 or something like that. So then generally I'll, I'll tailor it a little bit more towards that. But you can't be that prescriptive, I don't think. So – to a degree, it's still me that's writing it and something. It has to be not just information. It's got to be really entertaining or they're not going to read it. I mean, that's the basis of journalism. You can throw in, you know, all the information you like, but if it's not presented in an um, interesting way, they're not going to read it. Um, so that's that's that. And I think I just like the idea that, you tell a good story and you tell a good story whether you're writing for The Sun or The Age or The Sydney Morning Herald or or Halliday, tell a good story. And that is always the basis of what I do, hopefully. I think it's important, just as you said, Jenny, that, you know, you, you are thinking about what uh, what are you writing for? And again, I see the parallels in, in perhaps being a sommelier and bringing a gl- person a glass of wine at the end of the day, uh, whether you it's in your knowledge and how you deliver, um, you know, the different offerings that you're giving or you're writing about wine. You, you really need to represent yourself, but at the same time, you really need to deliver what that person's looking for, whether it be a nice bottle of wine or it be uh, some information that helps their journey uh, in wine from there on out. Well, you do, and I think actually that's that brings in the whole bigger picture of of how of presentation. These days, you've got breakouts, and you've got lovely little drawings and interactive aspects to it. So it has changed quite dramatically over the last forty or so years that I've been writing about wine. But even though you've got all these things flashing at you and information coming at you from every direction, the information still has to be the same. It still has to be uh, applied to you and what you need. So when I, I write for uh, the Law Institute of Victoria Journal down here, and the audience is well-to-do lawyers, of course, but... I still like to make it interesting. You can't you know, can't always give them $80 bottles of wine. So I'm giving them a $12 or um, a $15 or something that's imported that they may not be aware of. I think that's the whole joy of wine, especially from a wine writer's point of view, that you are constantly putting forward these wines that people go, wow, I'd like to taste that. That's a good price. Um, that sounds exciting. You're opening up the, the wider world for wine drinkers, and I think that's one of the best parts of my job. Absolutely. And the thing is, is that we know that there's great wines at all these different um you know, quality levels, aren't there, and value levels. And it's not because we want to flog this wine because for any other reason other than we already think it's great and you don't have to spend a bucket load every time. I um, look. I love Chardonnay as much as anyone else, but and my friends love Chardonnay. So when we go out, I say, "Look, let's just try a Fiano, or you know something else," um, and they love it. Or Pinot Gris. 
they love it. But people, and I include myself here, you do get in a rut. You go, well, I'm a Chardonnay drinker. That's all I'm going to drink. And it it narrows your wine world. Um, This way, it's unpredictable. Again, that's what I love about it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You've mentioned once or twice before, perhaps in a a little uh, piece that someone's interviewed before, that your guilty pleasure is Rutherglen Musket. I love the way you talk about wine. Tell us why you love Rutherglen Musket. Why is that your guilty pleasure? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, it's a long story, a long, long story. I am Melbourne born and bred. One of the first regions, uh, wine regions I went to was Rutherglen. Uh, I used to go to their Rutherglen walkabouts, which were quite infamous uh, back in the day. Lots and lots of people and lots and lots of drinking. Um, it's changed a lot, I might add. But I loved, I lo- well, again, it gets back to a sweet tooth. It gets back to the taste, that glorious sweetness. And it's not sickly sweet because you have the acid balancing it, you know, and, and the um, – the, the blending that they've done. So you just marvel at someone being able to produce something like that in the first place. And then the flavour is just so exquisite and complex and long-lasting and you could survive on it, I reckon, quite easily, or I could survive on it. And I just I get a bit depressed that when um, a 0.05 came in, and now I am showing my age, people – uh, who were dining out in restaurants stopped um, having a glass of fortified. It was a tradition. You would finish the meal with a glass of fortified here. And so they blamed the fortified on, you know, their blood alcohol reading going higher. So they stopped that. Sales of fortifieds in general dropped virtually overnight and have never really gone back to those um, pre-1975 or whatever it was um, time. And now you've got in that space, what, three generations of wine drinker who haven't been brought up with it. They're not really aware of it or comfortable with it. It seems too sweet or too alcoholic or too this or too that. And I see it partly as my job to um, to re-educate, <laughs> re-energise um, interest in fortifies because they're most extraordinary things. You know, that's the first time I've ever heard someone talk about the fall in fortified sales due to that 0.05. And that's incredible because I, you know, what you've said is that it, it really had a huge impact, but then the reintroduction of it, you're right. People do say, oh, like it's too strong or it's too this, but no one get, gets a, a flower chocolate cake and says, oh, it's a bit too chocolatey. It's a bit too sweet. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's indulgent and they're so complex. So I'm completely with you on that. They are some of the greatest, certainly wines we make uh, in the world. Um, but so interesting. I, yeah, you've just blown my mind with that. <laughs> Well, it helps when you're old, you see, to be able to <laughs> reflect back on these things. It was uh, it was a major had a major impact, and the other major impact that no one talks about was when they changed the um, the, uh, the tax laws, which up until whenever it was again in the 1970s, um, producers were allowed to age their wine 
without paying tax. So they could age it for six years, eight years, and then release it and not have to pay tax while they were aging it. And, of course, it was seen as a loophole, so that changed. They were taxed year by year for the storage when it was in the cellars. And we went from, when I first started tasting wine, the reds would be six years age when released. And, again, quite rapidly, uh, wines were being released earlier and earlier and the winemaking changed uh, accordingly um, so that the tannins were less pronounced because they were being sold earlier and people were drinking them earlier. And so, again, you've got at least two or three generations who are now used to drinking wines, all of their wines, especially their reds, one or two years out. And, and again, these are these, these kind of foreign or near foreign things that suddenly have huge impact on on the way people see wine, where they buy it, the way they taste it, why the way wine makers make it. Um, and I think we've forgotten to a large degree um, that that is where we are at today through some of these these changes. Yeah. Death and taxes, so they say. Um, Jenny, can you paint a picture for everyone that's listening, kind of of what your everyday kind of work day or work week kind of looks like for you? (laughs) Well, when we're doing holiday tastings, which is basically from December through to the end of, or November through to the end of February, it is tasting wine every day. This year I did 1,800 49 wines over that period it's a lot of wines and um your day your day starts well i don't start that early um i start about 10 9 or 10 and then i'll have a coffee um and it'll go through to about six or seven um james halliday i might add has been doing this almost all of his life he starts at 7 a.m and he goes through to 7 p.m um, I, I I don't know whether I could ever do that for such a period of time. But, yeah, during the holiday tastings, it's pretty full on. Opening wines, tasting them, writing tasting notes, information about them. Um, other than that, uh, I work now for a wine pilot. So, like today, I've got about, I don't know, eight wines to taste. That's, that's a nice number. Um, and I've just finished a couple of stories, so... I'm kind of in between, but then next week we start the Australia's Wine List of the Year Awards and I'm a co-deputy chair of that, so that will be um, full on for the next two months. So it's always changing. That's what I loved about journalism and always have loved about journalism. Every day is different. No day, no two days are ever, ever the same. And it's just this wake up in the morning and go, well, what's going to happen today? And if, it's, if you're a news journal, then, you know, it's all kinds of things happening. But even in wine, there's something always happening that, go, oh, okay, might have a look in that or, um, or talk to someone about this or that. It's, um, love it. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you really need to be a bit of a self-starter, highly motivated to kind of plan your own day and get through what you can. Is that something that you've always found quite easy to do? Um, yeah, actually. Um, first of all, deadlines. I love deadlines. Give me a deadline. I will work to it. Um, and I know not everyone feels the same about deadlines, but after 46 years in journalism, you work to a deadline. And working to a deadline means, well, today I have to do this, this, and this, and this. 
So if someone else has given me that deadline, that's fine. Um, but, yeah, look, I don't know. My husband's very different. He's a journalist and he always likes to be directed to something. And, and But I actually like looking for things. I suppose it's because I work from home. And um, I need to be on top of what's happening so I can, um, you know, pitch a story to a, a, an editor about it. It's, um, I don't know, you just get used to it. It's a habit. Um, it's a habit I like. It's a habit I work well to. Um, I don't know. And maybe it's just me being a nerd as well. I mean, <laughs> that's a strong possibility. <laughs> the fact that you love what you do and that you're so interested in it, I mean, that's a huge motivating factor, I imagine. But I think a lot of people misconstrue, you know, tasting wine. Uh, it's part of, I, I'm sure, many, many careers that people look at at what, you know, the positives in someone's career and think everybody swans about and there's no hard work. But what are the highs and the lows of kind of being a wine journalist? Well, highs, there are plenty of those. Um, you just go out, you talk to people, you taste great wine, you get to travel to regions. Uh, I think that's, you know, that is everyone's dream job, especially if they drink wine. Uh, it is a dream job from that point of view, and that's what's kept me going for so long that it's just this constant introduction of, of mostly excellent wines um, and mostly excellent regions, producers, stories to tell and write. The lows, I actually don't have that many lows. I really don't. Um, I suppose, no, I don't have a low. No, no. I can't think of one because I love what I do. It's as simple as that. And even when you're annoyed at something or someone doesn't ring you back in time or, you, or you've or you written a story but you're still waiting on someone to, to, to give you some information, I mean, that's just annoying. That's not a low. Um, no, there's no lows. Hmm. No. Amazing. It just says so much about you and your outlook and uh, you're such an inspiration. I love it. You're, you mentioned before that you're deputy chair of um, or co-deputy chair of the Wine List of the Year Awards. Uh, you were named 2014 Wine Communicator of the Year, named Legend of the Food and Wine, Melbourne Food and Wine Festival, and named Legend of the Vine by um, Wine Communicators Australia. The list goes on and on. What do you hold, though, as your greatest accomplishment to date? In wine or in life? <laughs> both, both, if you don't mind. Gee. I mean, you've got to say children, don't you? <laughs> I'm saying my two boys, <laughs> Michael and Harrison. They, you know, they came along and they were fabulous actually allowing me to work from home to to guide them through their edu you know their education doing re reading in school and writing in school with them and being on mothers clubs and all that kind of thing it it was part of a community which i still am part of so that's a real plus for me um what else gee i think i look um i got to say i loved working for the age I think I loved because I could write across all sections of the age, not just for Epicure. I could write news stories. I, I wrote for finance, the odd story. I wrote uh, opinion, at least one opinion piece. Um, and I loved that, that breadth and the fact that they really, really saw 
the wine industry as something important to write about. I don't necessarily get that impression these days. That's another story. But in that heyday of the age, Epicure in particular, we had 12 tabloid pages to fill each week. And we had at any one time four wine writers. Now, on any scale, that is a heyday because I don't think you will ever see that again. And and I was part of that. So for me, that that was a definite high. I mean, I think that it's interesting you saying, you, you know, I think the more that you write, the more you become curious about everything else and the more you want to read more and gather more information. So I can see it being addictive. And like you said, there's, you go down one kind of channel and like you said, maybe writing about finance and, and more questions come up. So become more curious. So I can see by being able to be involved in so much with the age that you would have really um, been subjected to a lot, but also the world of everything would just open up for you. Mm, it's, um, it's, it's one of the, when you're starting journalism, um, the first thing they say is you've got to be curious. You have to ask questions and be curious. And, and, and I see that as a real strength in, in journalists these days. Um, curious about everything, not necessarily just about the subject that you're writing on, but curious about all kinds of things. But I will say that, um, slightly offhand here, that um, you should see my wine book collection. <laughs> I am such a nerd that um, I will buy any wine book that comes along. So, again, it's that it's not just – it's words in every form. I suppose that's what I'm trying to say. Um, it's websites. You have no idea how many subscriptions I have. Um, and books and newspapers and magazines. And it, it's quite enveloping and um, I really like it. I feed off it. I think that's the, I think that's the best way to describe it. You feed off all these ideas and and different writing styles and all these different people out there writing about wine. There are so many good writers out there. Words of every form. I love that. So the the idea is be curious and be hungry. I suppose. <laughs> and thirsty. Okay, <laughs> and thirsty. Absolutely. <laughs> Jenny, what do you think? the future of wine journalism is? I mean, you've come and you've seen over your time just so much change. What are you excited by? What do you think the next step for, for wine journalism is and, and, and how is that going to move forward? That is a really, really good question. Yeah, it's a big question. <laughs> it is a big question. Part of me is a little bit depressed. <laughs> part of me is excited. The depressed part is the loss of um, newspapers, magazines, um, to a degree. They are generally struggling. So the options or the career advancement for wine writers through those mediums is certainly not as strong as it once was. So that to me is is sad. But that is just the change that we've been seeing in in people's reading habits for the last and their information habits over the last fifteen years, twenty years or so. What really excites me is the young writers coming through, especially young women writers. Uh, it is something of an obsession with me, but I would you know it's not my industry, but I can see um, so many women in wine, especially in the wine industry or in associated industries um, who want to write about wine 
and have fabulous palettes, they're, they're struggling. So I would like to see more women coming through, and I think that is something to look forward to and to get excited about for the future. And I think just in general, the younger generation, they do things differently, which is what you want. You don't want the same old, same old. You don't want them to drink the same old, same old and write about the same old, same old. You have to have change. You have to have that that's like chaos between generation to generation so that it becomes more appealing to, to the people starting out in wine today. Um, I, I don't I, – enjoy talking about the old days you know we used to do this in the old days I can't stand that you keep going forward and the only way to go forward is to go forward with the younger generation um, if they want to know about stuff yeah I'm, I'm happy to to help I've got a couple of mentees through the wine communicators of Australia mentorship program they're fabulous that's the future and they are damn exciting hmm You've always been such an advocate for supporting the younger generation. And I think, you know, like you said, you also need to stay current. And like you said, keep your finger on the pulse, which is why I think you're involved in so much is that, that you, you are so current and you do have something to say and you are up to date with everything. But I think that that, that support of, of what's happening for, for people out there. I mean, I think for a lot of people that are involved in wine, the idea of wine journalism is just a little bit foreign to them. How do I get involved? How do I become a wine journalist? Do I need to be a great writer straight away? I think that stops a lot of people. And from what I can see, there's so many people wanting to be involved in the world of wine. I mean, even Psalms and, and, um, uh, take people wanting to taste and there's a lot of excitement around there but I think sometimes breaking down the barrier of of understanding how you get there and and what you need to do um is is a big question mark for people so you've kind of answered this already but what what is the advice for people wanting to be in wine journalism what would you say to them up, I would apply for the Wine Communicator of the Year mentor program it is held every year if you are successful in it, uh, you will be teed up with a wine writer, such as myself, and that will be a really good introduction to the basis or the basics, I should say, of wine writing. And some of it can be quite, you know, boring to a degree. It's it's English, it's spelling, it's grammar, um, even before you get to you know, all that lovely flowery writing that you're hoping to, to maybe embrace. So, and then what I have done with my former two mentees is let's do a story together. So we've written stories together. They learn the process of interviewing and then writing and then uh, subbing their own stories. And then um, fortunately, they've, they've been able, we've both been able to have them published and I think that is the best way to kind of dive into wine writing is to go through the process with someone and and learn all the nuts and bolts. And it's it's a discipline. It's as, it's the same as learning car, you know, mechanic or something. Um, <laughs> it basically is there are steps that you have to take and you have to be aware of and and it eventually will become clear. It is a process. 
I think it's amazing that you, you know, spend your time doing and being part of something like that and you can so that there's opportunities for people out there. So incredible advice for someone wanting to start out and, and thank goodness that there are such programs like Wine Communicator of the Year. That's wonderful. I ask everyone on the show, Jenny, if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? Well, what wines will I drink? Well, you know, one of them already. It's, it's got to be a Rutherglen musket. Uh, but to start, I would have always Claire Valley Riesling. Love good Riesling. And then I would follow Grampian Shiraz, those kind of cooler climate styles, lots of spice, lots of life and energy. Uh, and then, of course, my musket to finish, um, which is – what you do when you're in this house. Absolutely. I mean, it's so well-rounded. It, you know, you've got something that's going to go with anything you're going to eat um, and just wines that you can sit down and look at for a long time. So I can completely understand those three choices and they did not disappoint. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, these were wines that I've been brought up with. Um, so they're, they're very uh, familiar, very warming, very, um, what's the word, comforting. That's what I love about him. Absolutely. I can, I can see that. And, and, you know, you're spoiled for choice in terms of lots of wonderful brands and, and different styles. So uh, excellent choices. Jenny, you are an inspiration to the entire Australian wine community. Anyone involved in any aspect of this industry should be grateful for the foundations that you've helped lay in your time. On behalf of all of us, I want to say a very big thank you for all the work that you have done and continue to do. And I really appreciate you spending some time chatting me with today. I know how busy you are and you've got all those wines to get to. So thank you so much for being part of the podcast. Oh, thank you, Shante. Much, much appreciated. <laughs> we'll chat again soon and cheers to you, Jenny. Okay. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.